Welcome to the Behavioral Design Podcast, hosted by me, Samuel Salser, and my wonderful co-host, Aline Halsworth. Hey, Aline. Hi. How how engaged are you in this moment? How engaged am I? Uh, I mean, I... God, like, what do you expect? I think, as always, you have 100% my full attention. I would say nice. I'm, I'm fully, fully engaged. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm in a state of flow. Um, just wow. going with it. Yeah, I'm here. That's great. 110%. Well, I ask, you, I ask you this because I think the word engaged and the word engagement in our world, you know, is very much perhaps the most used word like i work so much with product teams where they talk about how do we increase engagement how do we get our users engaged how do we get our employees engaged overused. and so on yeah yeah so it's probably overused and oftentimes i would say pretty poorly defined and understood like what do we actually mean by this um yeah so in this episode we we really explore this poorly understood term as we speak with the fantastic Heather Cole Lewis, who is famous in our circles for her big E, little e framework. And Heather is a leader in digital health, and she has done some fantastic research and evaluation and works currently at Google as a health equity clinical scientist. And maybe you can share a little bit more about what we get into. Yeah, we had a very interesting conversation with Heather. We talked extensively about engagement uh, in digital health interventions. Of course, we touched on her big E, little e model. We're going to get into that uh, at great length. And she shows us how she would use this to redesign the toothbrush. This is our product deep dive. Um, and, and to do this, she takes a very targeted approach. So taking into consideration everything from the person's background, their goals, their specific context, um, really kind of considering everything that could come into play when uh, a user is uh, is intending to, to you know, brush their teeth more reliably, maybe more accurately, you know, um, yeah. just more consistently, you know, just talking us through all of the different things that come into play. And, you know, I think a lot of the time, but she, you know, she touches on this fact that we oversimplify things, but we really do need to get into the details. And by taking this kind of a approach, Heather t- talked about how, how this can help us solve for disparities in health and uh, lead to a more equitable approach to intervention development. And finally, we talk about how to really embrace making a business case for behavioral science. Yeah, how to sell behavioral science. How to sell behavioral science. All right, time to get engaged. Yeah, so let's get the episode started. Here's our conversation with Heather. Heavens to Murgatroyd. <laughs> Heather, welcome. Uh, we are so excited to chat with you today. Your name has come up. I think I think at least two of our guests have discussed your your engagement framework. About, and well, you know, we'll get into this a little bit later in, in terms of the big E and the little E. But yeah, we, we've just been dying to actually get you on the air. So welcome. Thank you so much. I am honored to be here. I'm so excited about the conversation. Um, I hope to learn more from you all as we're talking. Uh, we'll, we'll try our best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lower expectations on that. Well, we'll do our best. But uh, we, we're expecting to learn from you. And uh, I think it's going to be really fun to to have this conversation with you. And I think what we usually do is kind of jump straight in in some ways with a big leap into the wild. And what we want to understand initially, given that this is a very aims to be practical podcast, is, you know, in your experience, you've obviously seen a lot of behavioral science implementation uh, interventions in the wild. Is there any example of like behavioral design done either really good or really bad in the real world that you kind of remember or sticks out for you? Yeah, thank you so much for this question. I'll tell you that there was a point in my life where there were certain interventions that I would have pointed to. And I think these are the classic um, interventions that we are very well aware of that have worked. And oftentimes they're policy level interventions because we think, okay, well, if you get them at the policy level, those are the ones that have been most successful. So people will, will call out smoking cessation, right? They'll say smoking cessation has been one of the most successful interventions because we took an individual level approach 
um, where we, you know, went out to people, we scared them, we gave them messages, we shamed them in public. And then at the same time, we put laws in place that said that they can no longer smoke on airplanes, um, they can no longer smoke in buildings and so forth. And we created this very public intervention that went alongside um, an individual level, level intervention. And, and so if you had asked me this question seven, eight years ago, I would have absolutely said that this is the best example that I can come up with between that and seatbelts. And then fast forward a little bit, um, a little bit more life experience, a little bit more reflection on the field of behavior science, on understanding more about um, participatory research methods, understanding more about how to actually combine methodologies of understanding context and people in context. And I start to feel differently about those interventions. And I'll tell you why. It's because when you start to focus and ask questions about the percentage of the population that these interventions didn't work for, you start to see a particular pattern. Mm. You start to see that they're the people in society who are often left behind for many different aspects. Those are the same people that you see having the worst health outcomes when it comes to these interventions. And so I'll give you an example. Um, when we look at the numbers, and, and, and forgive me because I haven't looked at these numbers in over a year or so, but when we look at the numbers related to the populations that are struggling the most when it comes to smoking cessation at the moment, it's um, trans and LGBT youth, uh, excuse me, trans and LGBTQ youth. It's also people of lower socioeconomic status. It's also oftentimes um, Black, people from various different walks of life. And so when you start to get, oh, and, and people with mental health challenges, and, and I mean, like diagnosed mental disorders. And so mm -hmm. when you start to think about that, you have to ask yourself, how are we defining success? Mm -hmm. Right? And, and so me, I'm an optimist. <laughs> and so that puts me in a position of thinking, how do we redefine success? How can we think about changing our approach, changing these interventions, changing our methodologies, um, drawing from methodologies from other fields that will help us to get to a better solution. So we can get to a position where we've got large-scale interventions that are happening at both the systems level and the individual level. Um, and those interventions are also working for people in the context of their lives. And they're working for people in a way that is respectful, that honors those people, um, and really, and really transitions with people through time and gives them the things that they need whenever they need it. Because if we think of one individual over time, that person is changing. And then if we think of populations and people over time, people are changing in those ways as well. I'll give you, I, I, and if I just had to, you know, speculate again on why a, a, a solution like smoking cessation, which I, I'm telling you would have been my success story some years ago, <laughs> it's because the behavioral techniques of shaming and stigma just really compounded over the yeah, I mean, I feel like that's not a that's a good that, that's not a good strategy for anyone, right? Am I <laughs> a, absolutely? I, I think exactly, and so we've learned over the years, right? Um, but but unfortunately, when you use those techniques, you tend to exacerbate the people who are already experiencing those techniques because of societal pressures and societal perspectives and and so forth. Yeah. The other the other thing that happens is that. Oftentimes we have, when we take a public health approach, we're looking to try to get the most people using the least number of techniques because we're thinking mm -hmm. that that's a cost-saving methodology. But it's actually not saving any cost because you still are just going after these. And we started to label them as hard to reach. We're still going after these same hard to reach populations, thinking about you know disparate approaches to dealing with them. And then we just kind of say, okay, well, we've got most of the folks. And what you have is you leave people further and further behind and also when it's a policy level intervention, oftentimes then we start to see new behaviors. So you start to see the people who are standing outside in the freezing cold um, smoking. You start to see the people who are getting the dirty looks in public. And so again, like I said, it just all starts to really compound. And so what we need to be thinking about is, and then those things create stress, right? And we know stress is the reason people smoke oftentimes, right? And so it just really, it ends up being a vicious cycle, which makes it harder and harder for the people, again, who now need it the most because they're the people who the interventions haven't actually addressed, um, don't have solutions that are 
right for their space and their need. And we're also focused on that singular behavior of picking up a cigarette or an e-cig or whatever it is yeah. and, and consuming it, which is very different because we know that there are many other behaviors that lead to that, that are related to that person and then the other people in that person's environment, the other policies and, 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 and factors that are influencing the way that they move through society and the way that they move through life. So it's a really long answer to say, no, I don't have an answer. I don't have great for you, well, um, but I have a lot yeah. of lessons learned. Let me dive in just a tiny bit more because I'm curious what the, what a good solution does look like. And and have you thought about or, or actually seen in the real world any, you know, particularly good examples of reaching the hard to reach populations and what kinds of interventions are successful there? And we can we can stick with smoking cessation as the example. So I think smoking cessation solutions that have been shown to be successful. I think they're the ones that include aspects of solutions that people have already started to come up with themselves. So what we know is that mm-hmm. it's in it sometimes it's not really as much about that individual being able to stop or their motivation to stop as much as it is also about the people that they're around. So we've seen that for there, when there are couples and one is smoking and one is not smoking, it's a lot, we see the same thing with, with nutrition and weight loss. It's a lot harder if they aren't in, in an environment that is encouraging of that. Um, it's a lot harder if there's not access to the solutions that are additive. So we know that with, with smoking cessation, it's not only just the stopping of smoking, but oftentimes there's that step down that happens using uh, nicotine replacement solutions that you can use in a, in a very targeted fashion that will allow a person to step down from using the cigarettes over some period of time. And oftentimes you find that people either aren't using those or they're not using them in the way that they were actually designed to be used. So it's a combination of what is the person's social support? What is their ability to actually access those additive solutions? What is the the access that they have? Meaning, can they afford? Do they have someone to give them the guidance? Do they have a system that's walking them through the, the process of what that is meant to be? Um, and so forth. So it goes on and on. And I think, so if I just had to describe the characteristics of programs that work, they really are programs that address that person in the moment and where they are. So we're not expecting that someone's coming either to a smoking cessation clinic. We're not expecting that everyone is coming to, uh, everyone is trying to stop smoking because they want to stop smoking. We are just addressing that person where they are, whether you want to or not stop. If you want, the person who wants to stop smoking needs a different intervention from the person who does not want to stop smoking. The person who has a support network that also is encouraging of them stopping smoking might need a different solution from the person who has a social support network that is not um, supportive of them stopping smoking. And sometimes it's about where that person lives and the social norms and so forth. And so sometimes the intervention isn't gonna be with that person as much as the intervention is with the people that they're around or the systems that they're around or providing access to more effective smoking cessation programs. So I guess the characteristics of programs that work are are programs that are looking at that individual, where they are in terms of what their needs are, the most immediate factors that are affecting their lives. Are they happy? Do they have mental, do they have the things that they need mentally, physically, emotionally? And then from that perspective, do they have the actual technical, the medical solutions that they need to stop smoking? And then what is the social support that, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And so you're looking yeah. at who's the individual, what are the things that surround them? What are the societal factors that they're dealing with? And then how do we intervene? Because oftentimes we don't need to necessarily intervene with that individual as much as we need to intervene outside of them. And then other times we need to intervene at more than one place. We just, it's just, a, it sounds complicated, <laughs> Um, but it I think is. It's, it, it, and I think that's yeah. what we underestimate, right? Yeah. Is, is we are oftentimes exactly. saying yeah. that. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of our, you know, dinky little behavioral interventions are like, oh, we'll change this one thing and then everything will be magically fixed. But the reality is, that, you know, like life is really complicated. We have lots of struggles that go beyond that tiny little tweak. Um, and so I, I think as a field, we're starting to move in the right direction. Um, but yeah, still, still lots of work yeah. to do. Yeah. Can I add one All more right. thing on, oh, before yeah. we move to the next question? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I, I love that we started the conversation on, on, on the smoking cessation topic, because in my journey as a behavioral scientist, working with the digital smoking cessation program was when I felt like I got my 
what do you call it, like humility exercise, like my <laughs> my sense of like realizing how little I knew. And where it come from was that we we did a lot of looking at kind of trying to map out each and every cigarette among kind of um, a sample of, of participants of the program to kind of see like what is the antecedent, like the trigger and, and the consequence of each of these individual cigarettes across the day. And just being very humble to the fact that not only do we have these very, very different people, you know, in various stages of their life, living different socioeconomically across society, but also so many of their behaviors, like smoking, is so different from one to the next, like from the first cigarette to the second, to the third, to the fourth. They had different antecedents, different consequences. And we kind of just had to be like, wow, okay, when we're going to try to help these people, we can't just have this very simple approach because it's it's kind of like you're forced to see the complexity when you're starting to actually look at the problem from you know more of a you know deeper view. Yeah, yeah, it, it's very funny. I I sometimes hesitate to tell someone I'm a behavior scientist because oh. I don't want them. <laughs> I'm I'm a happy behavior scientist. I'm a proud behavior scientist, but I, I do think <laughs> that the field and the history of the field has really put us in a position where we are coming to the table sometimes thinking we've got the answers, mm -hmm. um, making it seem as though the people's life, experience, life experiences are, more, are less complex than they are. And we aren't really taking into, in, into consideration the full picture of things. And so I think, like you said, that that spirit of humility really is, is what we as a field definitely should be continuing to build on. And then also thinking through understanding how to tease apart, like you just said, what is the science telling us? What is, what is the data actually telling us? And how does that enhance what we already know based on the years and years of behavioral theory and practice that we already have? So I love that. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm now going to ask you to draw upon your, your years and years of, <laughs> of experience and practice. Uh, let's jump right into our, our products deep dive. Um, and so what, what we do for each of our guests is we pick a product uh, that we think you might have some insight into, you know, or at least could, and then ask you to use what you know about behavioral science um, to improve that product. And so for you, we picked the toothbrush. <laughs> And uh, for me, this is this is a very personal example at the moment. Uh, it's very close to my current struggles as I have a, a, a young son who's in the, the phase of, of uh, learning how to actually brush his teeth. And I've found that uh, it, it's a lot more difficult than just give him the toothbrush and put some toothpaste on it and like, press go. You know, sometimes he will, uh, you know, play around with it a little bit or throw it on the floor, suck the toothpaste off of it and swallow it. And, and I, I sort of caught myself thinking of, you know, maybe extending the metaphor of your little E, big E framework and thinking, oh, this is like this engaging with the toothbrush is sort of like, <laughs> yeah, sort of like the, uh, the little E, but that, you know, that, that's not really what we're going for, right? Like we want him to actually successfully brush his teeth. And so I would love for you to solve this problem for me. <laughs> Tell me, what would you do to, to improve the toothbrush to actually uh, get someone to brush their teeth? I love this. I am also <laughs> in the throes of um, teaching young children how to brush their teeth. I've got two. Awesome. And that is uh, that has that has been given me a lot, a lot to think about. Actually, I also have been thinking about little E and big E as it relates to brushing teeth. So this this should be interesting. So the first thing I'll say is that. Um, Wait, by the way, I'm going to stop. Sorry. Go ahead. I am uh, noticing that we have mentioned referenced. Big yeah, e, yeah. Small Let's e. do a quick intro. And so it'd be awesome if if you could introduce, you know, the the basic gist of of this, so people can. Really follow, yeah. No problem. Thank you so much. Um, so Big E, Little E is a conceptual framework that I've been using for many years in my work, um, developed with partners at a previous organization that I was with, and we published a great paper on it. It really was a way to identify and understand how to define and measure engagement throughout an intervention, throughout a digital intervention. Big E, Little E, it was created and conceptualized thinking from a digital perspective, and it applies across the board. It doesn't have to be digital. But essentially, what we're trying to do with this 
concept is break down this idea of understanding engagement. Engagement oftentimes is a blanket term that means many things to many people. And so in order to really, when you're thinking about changing health behavior, and most of my work has been anchored in the area of health behavior, which means I'm trying to understand what are the behaviors that are on the pathway to improving someone's health and well-being. So as we think about those things, we have to be very explicit in defining the fact that if I build an intervention and deliver it via a technology, via a mobile phone or whatever it might be, um, or, or a toothbrush. Engagement with that behavior is very different, the behavior being brushing the teeth. Engagement with the behavior of brushing the teeth and brushing the teeth effectively to the point where you are now preventing plaque and gingivitis and all of those things, cavities. That behavior of brushing your teeth and brushing all the right quadrants and brushing front and back, and that behavior is very different from the behavior of picking up a toothbrush and using it. (laughs) And so that is what I'm really trying to get at with the concept of big E and little E is just, again, being very explicit about what the behaviors are uh, that are being referred to when we talk about engagement. And so I'll break it down just a little bit more. So we've got on the one end, the ultimate behavior that we're looking at to prevent gingivitis and cavities and all the Mm -hmm. horrible things. And that is brushing your teeth. If you go upstream from that, the behaviors that get you to brushing your teeth are that you need to pick up the toothbrush, put it in your mouth, put the right toothpaste on it, use it, right? So there's that like engaging with the toothbrush and using the toothbrush that is also what we call little e. Mm-hmm. So little e in this situation, also you can be split that down one more set of levels, right? Because little e also is about, you know, Do I think the toothbrush is nice and pretty? Is it pink? Like my daughter likes pink. Does it have little Yoda? She's got a little Yoda toothbrush right now that she loves. So so, so is that part and saying, oh, this is my toothbrush. I love the toothbrush. I'm engaging with the toothbrush. That is very different from the fact that the toothbrush is what we call addressing the behavior change techniques, which are those things that are allowing you to actually use your toothbrush in the appropriate way. And so when we think about the behavior change techniques, behavior change techniques are tools and techniques that we use in behavior science to address the determinants of behavior. So determinants of behavior are, if we think about that behavior of brushing your teeth, what are the things that are allowing me to brush my teeth? It's either going to be your capability to brush your teeth, your opportunity to brush your teeth, or your motivation to brush your teeth, just to put it very simply. And so if we're looking at those things, the behavior change techniques that we're using are specifically addressing capability, opportunity, and motivation to brush your teeth. They are not, something can be technically appropriate to help you to brush your teeth, right? Meaning brushing all the right quadrants, um, brushing for the amount of right amount of time and so forth. And it can be completely disengaging. It can be very not fun. It can be very hard to understand. And so those are the pieces on the user experience side. So little e-engagement breaks down into engagement and user experience. And it also breaks down into the influencers of engagement of using the toothbrush as it relates to, did I actually solve for that barrier that is in the way of me actually getting to brush my teeth? Mm -hmm. This is not in the paper, but there's one more piece of that. If we go even further upstream, especially when you're thinking about digital, and these are the, they're often referred to as the um, digital determinants of health. Right. So you've got your behavioral determinants, which are really in that category of like, are, is, is this solution helping me to remember to brush my teeth? Is this solution helping me to um, brush my teeth at the, for the right amount of time and so forth? Those are in that little E category of am I engaging with the toothbrush? One period, one step ahead is the we call them the digital determinants of health or really contextual determinants of health, if you will. Right. So these are mm-hmm. some of the factors around like, do I even have access to a toothbrush? Do our toothbrushes accepted in my society? Are people using chewing sticks? Right? Like, so those are that, that even further one step up when you think about that person's context. Um, those are also the factors that you bring in. So, th- so, so engagement now, I've, I've added more to the, to the equation, right? So you've now got engagement with the health behavior. Did I brush my teeth? You've also got engagement with the, um, with the 
device that I'm using to brush my teeth, engagement with the toothbrush, which is, do I like it? Is it pretty? Is it beautiful? These are your UXR questions normally, right? Accessibility, likability, so forth. And then there's the determinants of, of, of engagement, little e engagement related to your capability, opportunity, and motivation. Are those behavior change techniques in there that I need to help me to use the toothbrush appropriately that ultimately get me to that big E behavior of brushing my teeth? And then one step up from that are the factors associated with, you know, just the contextual, the digital factors. Do I have broadband access if you've got a, a, a solution that's... that's um, <laughs> this is a very fancy toothbrush. <laughs> they exist. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I believe you've it. Got, you've got yeah, the toothbrushes with the timers and, the, yeah. you know, and, and, and that's the thing is like, oftentimes we want to throw the newest, the shiniest mm-hmm. technology in there, but you also have to think about the things like, do people have access to these things? Do people know what they mean? Will people use them? Um, and so those are the things we like to think about as we think about engagement. So hopefully that's a, that's a good example of how we think about big E and little E. And then I like to walk down the path of, or, uh, do you have any more questions on little E, big E before I jump into the designing no, the toothbrush? I, I, I want to jump in. Yet. Yeah. I, I want to know, yeah. you know, what happens once you're the, the toothbrush mogul? Like what are, what do yeah. our toothbrushes look like? Yeah. Yeah. So this one is really interesting because I can't tell you what the toothbrush is going to ultimately look like because it's Uh-oh. a design process. Right. Yeah. And then on top of that, we're designing on a solution that's already been designed. People have toothbrushes. A lot of people have toothbrushes <laughs> and they're using them and so forth. And so we have to make, so we're in an iteration phase of a toothbrush. And so I think the really important thing to think about is first of all, and, and you can pick any, you know, iterative design, iterative design methodology, right. You know, you have your design define, design, deploy, you you have the different versions of what you go through, but ultimately you're doing some form of exploration. You then are working to figure out what your user requirements are going to be. Once you know what those are, you're testing your user requirements if they work, and then you start to deploy in that early phase, um, and then you kind of put out to the world, and you want some sort of signal that's telling you, is this working or is this not working as you go along? So me, as I'm trying to understand, I'm asking multiple questions. So in the discovery phase, I'm trying to understand, well, what is what what is this health behavior that we're looking at? And which one are we actually trying to solve for? So the big E here, the brushing of teeth, again, it breaks down. There are many behaviors. You've got to brush, you've got to brush appropriately, you've got to brush for the right amount of time. Like which part of that behavior are we are we having an issue with, right? Because some of it might not be all wrong. And then which part is most critical, I think, to getting to the outcome that we want, which is no plaque, no gingivitis and all of that type of stuff, no cavities. And then once I've understood that from the, I'll I'll say the literature, the medical experts, then I'm going to start to try to understand what do those behaviors look like from the perspective of the person who's performing the behaviors. I'll take one step back too and say that in in consulting the experts, I've also started to try to think more broad about who those experts might be. So yes, I want to know what the dentists say, but I also want to know what the primary care doctors say, because there's so many little kids who aren't seeing dentists at that point. And so again, just trying to think about, again, if you think like one level up, right, the the, the tiniest C, (laughs) what are those folks who were involved early stream who might not be accessing this information or accessing toothbrushes in the same way that everyone else is? And so I'm thinking about I'm in the process of trying to understand what the behavior is. I'm consulting experts and those experts that I'm consulting, I'm trying to make sure that I'm consulting various types of experts. And so that will include dentists, but it'll also include primary care doctors and other people who maybe even daycare owners, right, who who see children and who know children and understand what their experiences are in brushing and, and what their perspectives on brushing are and what actual behaviors get them to the ultimate outcome. I then want to understand what kids think about brushing. <laughs> so what is, how do they define this behavior? Are they really defining it as brushing my teeth because I'm preventing gingivitis? Or is this just a fun time to be in the bathroom, right? And stand on a stool. Is this a fun time <laughs> Definitely to the latter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do, do, I get to, do I get to sit next to mom, stand next to mommy? Do I get mommy's undevoted attention for mm-hmm. X amount of time in a night? And so understanding those aspects to really help us to think differently about what that capability, opportunity, and motivation might be for, for the child. And then ultimately, as we think about this behavior, we know that 
there are many factors associated with, uh, I'll call these the opportunity factors of the kids. Like, do they even have access to fluoride toothpaste that they need? Do they have access to the right, uh, a toothbrush and so forth? And then do they even have the time to brush, right? And so that's when I'm starting to think, okay, well, who else, who are the other people involved in this process? And really brushing the teeth for children it's a diet, right? It's, it's the kid and some adult or the kid and some other person who's helping them through the process. And I think that's what has to be studied. So yes, the ultimate person who's being influenced or who's being a, whose teeth, the outcome exists in the, in the child's tooth. But that child is not alone. That child is also mm. with some other person. And so I'm interested in understanding the capability, opportunity, and motivation of that other person as well as the child. And also highlighting the fact that they might not align <laughs> <laughs> because where 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 parents' motivation is keep this child from getting cavities, the child's motivation might be completely different. It might be really have fun with this Yoda toothbrush and make a huge mess splashing in the bubbles in the water, right? That that has to be acknowledged. And those are the things that you have to take into consideration as you're trying to understand what those behavior change techniques are, what those levers are that you can try to influence as you're thinking about how to change that ultimate outcome that we're getting as the person is doing the big E of brushing the teeth. Now we're really in the domain of little E, both for the parent and for the parent or guardian and for the child. Um, and as I start to get to the, so, so my discovery phase is really two part, right? I'm going to the evidence and what does the evidence say? And then I'm looking at practice-based knowledge, right? So what are, what are parents saying <laughs> about how this brushing is going? What do they think needs to happen? What do kids say? Um, and what works for them? What doesn't work? What do the kids love about brushing? What do they hate about brushing? What are those things? Um, and then I'm going one step out and I want to understand two things. One, what are the environment that is influencing this brushing? Right. So are we brushing? Let's just even put it to one part of the day at night. Um, is this late at night? Is everyone tired? Is this earlier in the night where, you know, is there a movie or, you know, some promise of some uh, the mm. other thing, a book that's coming after that's really, you know, or are we just like, this is the last thing we have to do before we get to like, where does this fall in the process? Um, what technology is available or, or, or there, what technology is being used, what technology is not being used. These are all the factors I'm thinking about. And then the other set of factors I'm thinking about are who's not represented in this sample that I've identified in order to observe. And in an ideal situation, I'm observing, but that doesn't normally happen. So I'm observing, I'm asking questions. And so who's, who am I missing? What, as I'm starting to define both the capability, opportunity, and motivation of the parents or the guardian and the child, what perspectives are missing? Um, what about children who, who have housing instability? And, and housing instability can mean many things. It can mean that you are a person who is living in temporary shelters. It could also mean that you're a person who mom and dad live in two different places and you are you know, in one house on part of the night, part of the week and another house on the other week. So your routine is different. So, so what does that look like? How is that being represented or not being represented in understanding the, the challenges and the barriers to brushing? What does it look like for, uh, for children with varying levels of ability, for children who can't stand on a stool? Right. So what does that look like? So those are all the factors that I'm, I'm, I'm always just asking love myself, this. what's missing? What would you yeah. say? No, I said, I, I love this because like, in a way, you know, you said before in terms of this idea that sometimes you don't want to call yourself a behavioral scientist because it comes with some baggage. And I, I love this because I think this provides an insight into like the mind of a behavioral scientist in its true essence, because in some ways you presented with an easy way to say like, oh, here's a cool nudge you can do right? Here's a cool, sexy solution that you can implement. But uh, what I think is really beautiful to, to kind of hear you exploring is just, you know, really trying to consider, you know, all of these elements and all of these things that's, you know, involved in understanding really what is making this behavior happen or not happen and so on. And, and I think, you know, a, if you're a current practitioner or a new practitioner, like just listening to you uh, explore some of these things, I think should be very useful because it's it's really, you know, obviously this is kind of a mini, mini, mini version of what would actually happen. You know, that process would probably take a lot of time and and exploring some of these things that you laid out takes takes a lot of effort and time and mapping and and so on. But it was still really awesome to just, I don't know, <laughs> listening to you to kind of like make a sense of this. Yeah. And the thing here is that, and I think this is a little bit of of what this is the other side of being a behavioral scientist that's thinking about context and that's thinking about populations and that's thinking about impact for all is that 
sometimes it's scary, it's daunting, um, but I do really still rely on the same theoretical methods and approaches as other folks. And I really, I anchor myself in understanding context because I think that then points you to a lot of good answers. And I, I do think that technology allows us to be able to leverage new knowledge that didn't exist previously so that we can start to identify at least a starting place. And then from that starting place, you continue to iterate. So so I'll go really quickly in saying that, you know, once you've got that model and you just need to decide somewhere to start, you're not going to address everybody. And that's the whole point is that one size does not fit all, but we need to know who it fits (laughs) and who it doesn't fit and make sure that our first pass gets at the right, you know, the right group. Once we've got those things, we start to identify, okay, what are the requirements that could actually address some of these biggest factors? Because all of the factors aren't going to be the factors that are really causing plaque and gingivitis immediately? Like, what are those other things that we can try to adjust? And even what are some of the upstream behaviors that might get, make it that that period of actually putting that toothbrush in the, in the child's mouth less, less critical to get into those outcomes? Like, what about fruits and veggies? You know, like, what are, the, what are, what are they eating? And what about less candy? And, and what about um, having more nutritious meals? And you start to see, oh, well, that's a systems level intervention, because maybe for all of those types of children that we described, if they have better access to food, right? Um, if they have schools and examples on TV of what good nutrition looks like, then maybe, you know, you have a couple of years to <laughs> get to that perfect brushing. Okay, we need toothbrushes. <laughs> but maybe you get to that you get to that point where you 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 buy a little bit more time to get to that perfect biggie uh-huh. behavior, right? Yeah. And like yeah. you said, mm-hmm. you identify the levers and the things that are working currently. So my son currently, he does the whole brush in the mouth on the floor, everywhere else. But no <laughs> matter what, at the end of that process, I clap. Sister claps, mm-hmm. everyone claps because we want to continue to encourage that behavior, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that behavior change mm-hmm. I think that we know is working and we're going to anchor on that. We're incentivizing him to keep putting that toothbrush back in his <laughs> mouth until we can get to a point. And I was reading that it's like not until age seven even that you're expecting that children are brushing independently. Oh, so we've got gosh. some runway there, right? And so, <laughs> and so that's the other thing too is you need to understand like what is your runway? Like how much time do you have to iterate and getting getting through because maybe at certain parts of the process and depending on how urgent and how how much of a danger it is you're focusing on more on the capability factors and like getting it right and in other places maybe you just need to change the opportunity factors and just find something in the system that makes it a lot easier for these things to happen because maybe the best way to get the kids to brush at night is that mom and mom and dad and parents and whoever else need more vacation time or they need to lay, uh, they need earlier, they need to get off earlier so they're less <laughs> yeah. tired, right? They're less tired and they have more time to spend and make that experience enjoyable for the kid. And so mm. there are many different, I guess, to go very, to go, you know, technical from a behavioral science perspective. I think if you're using community-based participatory research methods, meaning that you as the researcher are not defining the problem. You're working with the people who are experiencing the behavior to define the problem. You're understanding that that person is not an island. They live within a context and within a system. And then you start to use that to define your capability opportunity, combi, theory, right? Using combi to define the individual problem, the problem that that individual is having. And then you decide, you don't intervene necessarily at the individual level immediately. You first interrogate the socioecological model as, a, as to look for levers of opportunity to actually influence those behaviors. So, so we've got technical now, right? So you've got your, your, you've got your community-based participatory research methods that you're using to better understand your individual behavioral determinants and the levers that you can use to influence those determinants. You're using your community-based participatory research as a methodology to understand the problem and understand the behavior. And then once you've defined the behavior, you're using the COMB model of individual behavior to better understand what the capability, opportunity, and motivation are to identify behavior change techniques that can move some of those levers. But when you search for your behavior change techniques, you're trying to understand if you're intervening at the level of that individual or at other levels using the socioecological model. And I really boil that down into people, places, and policies. So what are the people, places, and policies that surround that individual and that individual's behaviors that you can use to try to change uh, some of the outcome that you're seeing. And then ultimately, as you're building this system and designing the system, you're looking for any piece, uh, any lever 
whether it be a manual toothbrush or a digital toothbrush or whatever it might be, where you can start to get more data about how this thing is performing so that you can then start to build data that informs you about how it's working, which features are working, which parts of the intervention are most successful, which then start to help you to build more models and behavioral phenotyping in an ideal situation using data science, where you can start to identify what works best for what people in what context. And then you can start to identify places where you are doing enough (laughs) and places where you probably need to redirect your resources and try another way, try another approach, try another process. So that's really the, the big picture of it all. And I think ultimately, as long as we are defining our assumptions, defining the places where we aren't meeting the mark, being very transparent um, and letting the people that we're working with inform us about how things are going and what's working and what's not working, I think we get to a better place where we actually start to um, live into to live into the true promise of behavior science. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we usually have kind of this follow-up question to ask, like, okay, how would you personalize this? But I think you've already... <laughs> Yeah, I think I think that's pretty much where I am right now as I've grown in, in my sort of life as a behavior scientist. I'm I'm a hundred percent convinced that really understanding people in context, using that individual's experiences to anchor the problem, understanding the systems that they're in, and then figuring out what to do to influence that health, that health outcome. Is, is the best place to be. And in doing that, you're honoring both, you're using both evidence-based practice and then also using the practice-based evidence to inform you of where you're going. And you're constantly seeking for to, to measure and iterate because that's how we actually start to refine our behavior science methods and learn new things um, as, as we continue to go along. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it reminds me of this thing that I usually comes to me is the idea that, you know, if once you understand the problem, the solution becomes much easier to to design and, and so on. So what who who said who knows who said it, but this idea of like spend fifty nine minutes. Einstein. The internet says it's Einstein. I don't know yeah. who really said it. Heather, you have an interview in Amy Buecher's book, Designing for Behavior Change, which I think everyone at this point knows is one of our all-time favorites. And in this interview, you say the science is not always enough. It has to be about the science and the business case. And I'd love for you to just kind of elaborate on this thought, because I think that a lot of behavioral scientists kind of uh, struggle with this tension um, and want to figure out, you know, how do you actually achieve this balance? How do you connect the business outcomes that are you know, very important for the organization that you're working for um, with behavioral outcomes. And, you know, maybe it's uh, helping companies see how their KPIs are are tied to the interventions or, yeah, what is what does this mean to you? Absolutely. I love this question because I think a lot of people are afraid to go there. Mm. I think oftentimes, especially in health, so so I'll say behavior science is a big field, right? So there's, there's consumer science, there's uh, consumer health, There's behavioral economics, there's um, health behavior, which is where most of my work is anchored. There's also the market segmentation. There's tons of like behavior science, like we all know, behavior science can be scientist, can be many things. There's even organizational behavior. And I think in all of that, there are companies that are doing it. And so the reason that I work in the digital space is because I had a revelation early in my career as a health educator. And I realized that Oftentimes, the same people that I was working to try to reach in different communities, there were other people who were better able to reach those communities, better able to reach them, better able to influence them. And they were influencing them not in the same direction that I was influencing them when it came to to, to health outcomes. And so I started to ask myself, well, what are these folks doing? And I started to look and they were the big marketing companies of the world. They were the big, 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 big companies who had already figured out, you know, how do we get, how do we understand people's motivations? How do we get to what they're already doing and how do we get them to use it? So some examples, getting people to eat and drink certain things, getting people to use a cell phone and so forth, getting people to use a a, a computer, right? And so I started to ask myself, well, how, why is that working? But what I'm doing here in this binder with these messages that I'm supposed to be delivering, these things aren't working. What, what is it? And I said, you know what? What if I just cut this part of the equation of getting to people out of it 
And what if I started to leverage the place where people are? And again, it just came back to this, meet people where they are. And so if people are using phones, let's intervene on phones. Let's help them to be healthier using their phones. If people are um, being reached in the places of joy in their life in the sports arena and on TV or whatever, why don't we use those means? And so so to me, I've always, I early on connected this concept of health not needing to be divorced from business. Because I realized that there are several, many, 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 many companies who their outcomes, their success factors are anchored in people actually being healthier. You think of insurance companies, you think of of actual companies um, that hire people and, and, are, and are responsible for lot, you know, large employers. You think about companies who are, who are selling medical devices and even companies, tech companies who, who actually aren't in the officially in the health space, but that use solution that have solutions that actually influence people's health on a day to day basis based on how they search or what, you know where they look in terms of their geography. And so you start to realize that actually we're not all none of us no one's off the hook here. <laughs> we all at some in some way, shape, or form influence health because health ultimately is influenced by the way we live, what, you know how we work, where we play. All of those things influence our health. And so I think that as we identify companies and organizations whose outcomes and goals, whose bottom lines, whose reason to exist align at some way, shape, or form with that actual health behavior that we're looking for, it's to our benefit to try to help them to connect those dots. And then we do the work as behavior scientists of going backwards to say, okay, great. Here's your, you know, you've got a business outcome you want to meet. Let me show you how this health outcome actually is linked. Let me show you how this health outcome either helps you to reach a greater, a larger share of the market with your business tool or solution. Let me show you how this health outcome, reaching this health outcome helps you to better serve people. If you have a mission that's more of like a mission driven and and um, and about, about doing good in the world, let me show you how you can do more good in the world by actually addressing this health outcome. And then there's also, let me show you how you can just be, you know, better as a company. There are people who aren't being met that you could actually... So, so once you, whatever that lever is, let me show you how you can increase revenue if you have to go there, right? All of those things, whatever that lever is, if you, as long as you can make that connection between the business outcome and the health outcome, then the rest is your playground, right? Because we all know how to do the health behavior, big E, you know, connected to the little E, connected to the now littlest E, right? We all know how to do those things. It's just really getting enough time an opportunity in the beginning to create the business case to allow for that exploration to happen. And oftentimes people, and I know I, I talk on and on and on about all the factors that we have to consider as behavior scientists, but that doesn't mean we have to move slowly. We also can move really quickly if we're moving, if we're iterating, if we're being very clear about what we know and what we don't know, what's an experiment, what's unknown. If we're very transparent about those things and we put our, we put something, we put our stake in the ground somewhere and we test and iterate with transparency, with honesty about what we're learning, what we don't know, then we actually get to a point where we can start to make the proof, show show proof that those business outcomes are changing. And so what that also means is that you can't, one, don't, you can't take a one size fits all approach because you're never going to get to the true case with the business outcome. And you also can't take the approach that you're just going to put an intervention out and let it live. No, you have to be able to iterate, you have to be able to move quickly, um, and you have to be able to really make the case early on and continue to uh, advocate for that case. And sometimes it means you have to scrap what you're doing and start over. And that all is part of thinking with a business outcome focus, because it also helps you to get to a more realistic solution more quickly. Yeah, I love that. And and I think that ties into very nicely uh, our uh, somewhat, I was going to say final segment, but maybe we have one more after this. But the, the final major segment, which is to explore something we do this season, which is to ask you what to replicate. So we have these four hypothetical research findings. They're not real. We have made them up. Um, and and it's, it's uh, something that we invite anyone to test if they want so. But, but here is you giving your best bet, your best guess of what these statements replicate. And feel free to justify your prediction uh, a little bit if you want, but it's relatively rapid fire. Sounds good? Yeah, let's go. Okay. Would it replicate? Finding says that 
corporate implicit bias training programs lead to fewer staff sick days and lower turnover? No, I doubt it will replicate. I think I think that's going to take a lot of work. I mean, we know that implicit bias trainings actually have been shown not to be quite effective in the way that they're implemented in the real world. Um, and so, no, I'm going to go with the no there. Awesome. How about formal democratized mentoring systems lead to greater organizational diversity, equity, and inclusion? That was a lot of words in the beginning. You should say it again. Mentoring systems lead to better DEI. That could replicate. Again, if you're focused on the mentoring according to the right aspects of the challenges that a person is facing, but oftentimes it's mentoring and sponsorship. So, you know, I think with some massaging and some contextual um, specifics, perhaps, but just, you know, blanket one size fits all. No. Introducing negative messages about e-cigarettes into smokers' Twitter feeds has the unintended consequences of reminding them to smoke more. I actually would believe that one. (laughs) (laughs) Same. (laughs) All right. Text message interventions among first-time mothers increases rates of breastfeeding to a greater extent than a single in-person educational intervention. I think that would actually replicate because you're doing something over some period of time in the context of that person's life. Um, And I'm assuming there's some sort of, you know, relevance to whatever that situation is. I believe that one. Sweet. All right. That's the end of our, would it replicate? We just have one final question for you. And uh, this one's a doozy. What is your most controversial opinion in behavioral science? I think this concept of really bucking the system and starting with the combination of, yes, the evidence, but then also this idea of practice-based learning, uh, excuse me, practice-based evidence that we are saying, we actually don't have the answers from the beginning. We want to learn, we want to iterate, and testing all along the process with various different audiences. I think people don't like to hear that. I think people that sounds hard. Yeah, how do you get a job with um, that? <laughs> exactly, exactly. I, but I do strongly believe that if you are, um, if, if you're systematic um, and if you are just very explicit about where you're making assumptions, what are the knowns, what are the unknowns, then you actually get to a better place and you actually can iterate really quickly. And I think also this concept of that, it's not like we aren't going to reach everyone with one solution. People don't like to hear that, but I, th- I think there's hope. And I actually think that's where a lot of the innovation is in behavior science and opportunity. Awesome. Well, this was so much fun. I hope that you had yeah. a- as great of a time as we did. Um, thanks so much. Thank you. Yeah, this is awesome. And uh, yeah, remember folks, brush your teeth and uh, continue <laughs> to uh, you know, be good behavioral scientists, like embrace the, embrace the problems, the complexity, and I think that's where the good stuff happens. So, so yeah, thank you so much, Heather. This was awesome. Thank you. Time to wrap up another episode of the Behavioral Design Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. Oh, and I am an AI. Yeah, welcome to Uncanny Valley. Sam and Aline told me this is going to be an awesome season. So make sure to subscribe and help spread the word. Maybe share the podcast with a colleague or friend. And if you want to show us some extra love, head over to Habit Weekly. Come and join our community. Pro members get access to a wealth of resources and the chance to interact with leading practitioners. It's a great way to support the podcast and deepen your understanding of behavioral design. Our fantastic show music is Murgatroyd by the wonderful Dave Pizarro. And thanks to the team at Orange Wall Media for the production of this episode. For questions or ideas for future episodes, email podcast at habitweekly.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening. See you next time. Heavens to Murgatroyd. Oh,